0: But if you'll open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah 44, talking a lot about God's sovereignty. One of those church words that you don't tend to hear much outside of church. And yet one of the most important and central doctrines to Christianity that God is sovereign, meaning he is king, he is ruler over all of creation and all of history. He has ordained and written all of human history. Everything that comes to pass is that which he has decided. And yet in mysterious and miraculous ways, we won't ever fully comprehend, maybe until heaven Maybe we'll have the capacity to understand in our glorified state. God works in and through human choices and actions. They work together. And you say, well, which is it? Was it God or was it me? Yes. But make no doubt about it from the scriptures, you and I in no way can thwart God's plans. And story after story in the Bible makes that clear. That what God has ordained to come to pass comes to pass. And that ought to give us great confidence and trust and the peace that passes all understanding. And yet because of our unredeemed flesh, that, that residual sin nature, we struggle with the sovereignty of God. We find ourselves dealing with a dilemma. I really, really, really think my life would go much better if I was completely in control of it. And oftentimes I think everybody else's life would be much better if they would just listen to me. (laughs) And yet this is God's prerogative. When things are going terribly in the world and I see great injustice and suffering and evil, I wonder just how sovereign God really is. And man has struggled with that question all throughout history. Theologians call it the problem of evil. If God is all good and all powerful and all loving, then why so much evil? And with the advent now of the internet, we get to know about all kinds of evil that generations past assumed was going on but didn't have to be reminded of on a daily basis. But I find something working in me that when everything's going well, instead of attributing it to God's sovereignty and giving Him praise, I give myself praise. And so when things go well, I take the credit. And when things don't go well, I blame God. And it really should be the opposite. Evil is because of man's sin and his fallenness. In fact, if not for God's grace, the whole planet would have fallen apart a long time ago. And this is what the VBS is all about this week, this Noah's Ark theme. What happens to humanity when God pulls back restraining grace and lets man be sovereign? And the scriptures tell us the thoughts and intentions of his heart became evil all the time, in every way. And God flooded the planet So we would know that God is a God who judges, and rightfully judges. But he's a God of grace, too. And you see the poster up there, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God made a way of escape from his wrath. And for those of us on this side of the cross, that way of escape is the cross of Jesus Christ. And... Though in size smaller than Noah's Ark, it's literally bigger in the sense that there's room for myriads upon myriads of people to come to the cross and find salvation. But I wanted to share a portion of scripture with you this morning that might help you to wrap your mind around just how sovereign God really is. You yeah, know, like, well, how sovereign are we talking about? And can I be sure he's that sovereign? Do, is there any evidence? Is there any proof? We've seen through um, the narrative the whole, the whole story of Scripture from, from beginning to where we are in the, in the Bible, which is where God's people, Israel, they're in captivity in the east, and they're getting ready to be sent back to Jerusalem. But before any of that happened, it was predicted through the prophets, through Isaiah and Jeremiah. We saw that God called his people to repent from their idolatry, from worshiping other gods from denying the God that created them, sustained them, and delivered them. And sometimes we see in the Bible God bringing revival to his people and reforms like under King Josiah. Sometimes, though, we see God bringing retribution, but always to be followed up with restoration. And so through the prophet Isaiah, we learn that God would rebuke his people from, for their idolatry. He proclaimed judgment in the form of a foreign conquest and then an exile to that foreign land. But he also, through the prophet, extended hope and mercy according to God's faithfulness. In fact, telling them exactly how long they would be in exile, 70 years. Remember, through the prophet, God spoke about using foreign kings as the instrument of his discipline. This is how he would discipline his people. These foreign kings would be the rod of his discipline. These kings oppressed and conquered Israel and Judah out of their own pride. They weren't doing it to glorify God. They were doing it to glorify themselves. God was using the evil of evil men to accomplish evil his purposes. This is how sovereign God really is. One would think it impressive if God, like a chess master, was picking up pieces and placing them where he wanted them. But somehow God works in his opponent to have his opponent move the chess pieces exactly where God wants him to. He works in our lives Gives us gifts and talents, puts us in situations, experiences, and all of this add up to us performing and doing the things exactly the way God wants things to turn out. And yet at the same time, by no means are we to just sit in our chairs and say, okay, move me, put me somewhere. He tells us in his word how he wants us to to act. His moral will is revealed in scriptures. He's given us the great commission. We know we're to go to all nations and make disciples. We know we're to be obedient to God's word. We know we're to worship him. But exactly where and when and how long and what kind of music and... sometimes. We wish God would just tell us exactly what to do step by step by step by step. But where would be the faith in that? And so God said through through the prophet that these kings who were oppressing Israel and Judah wouldn't get away with it. Once God used them for his purposes, they would be chastised as well. And we saw that Dramatically in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar repented, and we think perhaps he received God, the true God, as his savior. If you read the rest of Esther, like I asked you to last week, you saw Mordecai meeting his demise, ironically being hung on the gallows that he had prepared to exterminate. The Jews. These stories should be enough for us to acknowledge God's sovereign control over human history, but there's always the skeptic. The natural man has his doubts, and even sometimes as God's people, we have our doubts. Maybe it's because the flesh doesn't want a God who's actually that powerful and that in control. I mean, that's a God I'd have to listen to and obey. Often we'll look back over our lives, won't we, as Christians, and say, oh, there's God's hand. I see what he was doing there, 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 and there, and working it all together. And the skeptic says those are just coincidences. Oh, how convenient to look back and say, oh, see, that was God working there, that was God working there. I think those are legitimate ways for us to look at God's sovereignty, and we should pause and look back over our life and see how he has moved in our lives and other people's lives to bring to pass his will. We, we should all have countless stories. We're just not very good at looking and seeing God moving we get stuck in the here and now and in our daily problems and, and we forget that God is working. He never sleeps, never slumbers. He's constantly working. I want to share a story with you to, to illustrate this. A couple weeks ago, I got an email It was sent out to all the pastors in Tehachapi about an upcoming event taking place in Bakersfield, a, a prayer event called Awake California. And I get these kinds of emails all the time or I get people stopping in at my office saying, God put it on my heart to do this amazing thing, and guess what? Your church is supposed to pull it off. <laughs> and I say, well, God hasn't put it on my heart. Um, but I'll sit, I'll listen to people. And, and we'll discern together if this is indeed something God wants us to partner with. But it Being one of the larger, well, I guess the largest church in town, you're kind of a target. You know most of the resources are here, and it's a large building, and so we get a lot of these folks coming in, and lots of emails. I don't want to shut off my email in such a way that nothing comes through. But it's amazing how many phone calls and emails I get from someone who's got the next big thing that's going to change everything for Christ. So, I didn't know who sent the email, I didn't know who was sponsoring it, I was a little skeptical, I went on the website, they talked about meeting Bakersfield at Rabobank Arena and praying from morning to night. And that wouldn't be political, and it would be non-denominational, but there would be a national or state-level speaker on each topic that we're going to pray about. And I'm like, well, how's it going to be non-political if you're going to get a national or state-level speaker speaking on each topic? So I started to get a little cynical, and I just told the other pastors via email, look, I'd love to get together and pray and fast for our state, but I'm not so sure that this is going to be an event where any praying Is going to happen and i left it at that and then i got this phone call that i couldn't answer at the time because it was during an elders meeting but it was from the event organizer how did the event organizer get my personal cell number well it turned out the event organizers jp lake who's on the heritage oak school board i didn't know he was putting on this event I would have probably listened a little better, and in the voice message he left, he said, "Look, it's my event, sorry I didn't mention it to you. Let's get together and talk about it. I understand you have some concerns, but my family's going out of town on vacation and we're going to be out of cell phone signal. so we'll have to talk next week, but next week, Tuesday night is when he's going <laughs> to speak to all the pastors and pitch this, so he really wants to meet before that meeting because he's afraid that the email I sent out was going to put a wet rag over the fire, so to speak. Well, the weekend came and went, and I I didn't hear back from him. I had left him a voicemail and said, I'd love to meet with you. In the meantime, Tuesday morning hit, and I knew there were some people I wanted to visit down in Bakersfield at the hospital. So, I went to Memorial Hospital and visited the lady that had been baptized that I asked you to pray for and wanted to visit her after her surgery. And her surgery went well. Thank you for your prayers. And while I was down there, if you're going to go all the way down to Bakersfield, try to visit as many people as you can. I knew Dick Page was at Health South. And so I had to drive from Memorial to Health South. If anyone who knows me, it's kind of embarrassing, but I get lost. Even with all the technology, I need to live in a place for a long time and just know my way around. I used to work for an ambulance company, Schaefer Ambulance. I was rarely allowed to drive. <laughs> so don't ask me to, to be the, the, the driver unless I know exactly where I'm going. And you try to use Siri, and you say, "Get me directions," and it doesn't. It works for me. I knew where Health South was vaguely because I visited Mike Boers in Health South about seven years ago, six years ago. So I knew it was off of Truxton, somewhere in that business park over there. And uh, I I know that if you miss your left turn, you're stuck on Truxton for miles before you can make it. Okay, so you could see where one would get lost. So I I got there, and now I'm driving around this business park, and I cannot find Hell South. I found AAA. I know where that is now. And I said, I'm going to pull over and check my Google Maps. And I I pulled into a parking lot, and I look up, and it's the parking lot for the company Rain for Rent, which is the company J.P. Lake's family owns. And so my GPS, my God positioning system, (laughs) brought me to JP's office. And I still wanted to visit Dick Page, and I was still lost. But God's not lost. And I called JP, and I said, I don't suppose you're in your office? And he said, oh, I'm so glad you called. I I meant to call you. I said, I'm in the parking lot of your office. (laughs) God brought me to you the parking lot of your office. He said, which office? We have many. <laughs> Apparently, it's a large company. And I said, the, the one over by Health South, I don't suppose you know where Health South is. And he said, look out your back window. It's behind you. And it was. <laughs> in my defense, they're, they're renovating Health South in the outside of the building has a privacy fence around it. And so I got to visit Dick Page, and he's doing well, and I got to meet with JP, and I'm excited to tell you more about this event where I truly believe prayer and fasting is what is going to happen. Because a layman's putting it on. (laughs) And when he called the professionals to ask if they'd like to do it, they told him things like, California's a lost cause. Or... Sure, I'll come, but I have an honorarium. Or, why Bakersfield? (laughs) And so I think it's going to be a really wonderful, spiritually organic kind of event where the people who really believe in prayer are going to show up and we're going to pray for our state together. So that's pretty cool. And as Christians, we're like, yeah, God's hand had to be in that. There's just no way. But as amazing as that is, I'm going to take you to a scripture today where God's sovereignty is so undeniable that the skeptics had to make up stories that that portion of scripture must have been written after it happened, because there's no way anyone could predict with that kind of accuracy. You're right, no human could. But if there is a God, and he is sovereign, he should be able to do this, and he has. I'm going to read Isaiah 44 and a little bit of 45 to you with very little commentary It's important that we read Scripture out loud. The New Testament tells us not to neglect the public reading of Scripture. And sometimes as pastors, we forget that God's Word speaks for itself. Yes, we need to preach and teach it and explain it, but as Martin Luther said, sometimes you just need to open the cage and let the lion out. And this section of Isaiah, the lion, comes out. So hang on to your seats, follow along in your Bible, or watch the screen. Isaiah 44, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on... The thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand belonging to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it and declare it. Yes, let Him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place god is daring all pretenders to prove that they're powerful and he knows they can't he's he's almost mocking here Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile. And their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no prophet? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves, let them stand up, let them tremble, let them together be put to shame. If you make a god with your hands, then what is that god? It's not better than you, and you're just a man. And I understand we don't carve idols anymore. We have our own idols. Anything that supplants the true God as our source of wisdom and knowledge and salvation is an idol. Anything we think will bring us happiness and satisfaction apart from the true God is an idol. And all these things are man-made philosophies, ideas, dreams, hopes, desires. They're all idolatrous. But the fact that Israel actually carved these images makes for some very powerful imagery. God is comparing these false gods to himself. Let's continue reading. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood, he extends a measuring line, he outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. God didn't create all these things. Man would have nothing to work with. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. And he also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire, but the rest of it he makes into a God, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. They do not know nor do they understand for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls nor is there any knowledge or understanding to say I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it then I make the rest of it into an abomination and I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant, I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all along, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of a servant and performing the purpose of his messengers." It is I who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. Remember, Isaiah is prophesying before the Assyrians and Babylonians laid waste to Israel and Judah. So God predicted them that they would be laid waste, but he's also predicting that they'll be rebuilt. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, Be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire, and he declares of Jerusalem she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Who is the Cyrus. How can he be called God's shepherd? Historically, there's nobody in the time period of Isaiah named Cyrus. No reason for this name to be named other than that God put the name on Isaiah's lips and Isaiah wrote it. Certainly, Humanly speaking, Isaiah has no idea who Cyrus is and why he's to write his name. Other than that, the Lord told him to write it. This isn't that Isaiah is so clever and he can read the tea leaves, as it were, and predict the future. Yes, anyone could say that the Lord's going to allow calamity and then out of the ashes something will be rebuilt. If we study history, isn't that history? Nations rise, they fall, they rise again. But to name the deliverer, Cyrus. And he's going to go on and tell us more things about Cyrus. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand, to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. God will make it so that Cyrus can fulfill the Lord's decree without opposition. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I. I'll I'll give you the funds you need to rebuild. The Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of Jacob, my servant and Israel, my chosen one. I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor. So this Cyrus will be a a king. Though you have not known me. It'll be a king who doesn't worship the true God. Though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. Right? That is going to prove that only a real God, the true God, can pull off something this audacious. I will gird you, though you have not known me. Again, he repeats this. This isn't someone who knows anything about this plan or would even want to execute this plan for the glory of God. He thinks he'll be working autonomously. He'll have no idea that he's doing the Lord's work. So that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Was that line in one of the songs we sang this morning? It was. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Drip down, O heavens, from above and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth upon... Open up, and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? You hear what he's saying here don't contend with the almighty don't question his sovereign plans were they created things are we to say to the creator i don't think you know what you're doing why did you make me like this why would you allow this why wouldn't you do this Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and His Maker, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their hosts. I have aroused him in righteousness, and I will make all his way smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward. This, this king this instrument in God's hands will do the lord's bidding without any reward or bribery it'll be completely completely confusing and unable to be explained to the rest of the world why this king would allow an opposing nation to return home and rebuild And not only is he not going to get anything for it, he's going to front the money to make it happen. There's just no human explanation for what will happen. Turn to the book of Ezra. That's to the left in your Bible. One hundred and fifty years after Isaiah penned these words, and the Jews have been in exile now for seventy years, it's time to return home. How are they possibly going to return home when they're living in a hostile nation? A nation that's got used to depending on their gifts and talents. It's not like the first time when God delivered his people from Egypt that he brought all the plagues and Pharaoh finally said, get out of here. This time, God, the second exodus, so to speak, will bring his people home because the king will willingly said, hey, you guys should go back home and rebuild the temple. And worship your God there. And here's a bunch of money to do it. And I'll decree. Send a decree through my empire. That you're not to be touched. And that people should. Willingly give their own money. To help you in your endeavor. Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus. King of Persia. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord. By the mouth of Jeremiah, who prophesied contemporaneously with Isaiah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth And he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Notice he never says he's my God. Just as Isaiah said. And as the prophet Jeremiah also prophesied, that these kings would be doing God's bidding without knowing him personally or wanting to glorify him. God is indeed that sovereign that he could name the name of the king 150 years before it happens long before there was even a Persian Empire. This isn't a really good guess. This is a sovereign God who knows the future and makes all things come to pass, displaying His glory and recording it in Scripture for all generations to see. And I mentioned to you that this is so amazing that the naysayers, the Liberal theologians say there must have been a second Isaiah who wrote chapter 44 and 45. They call it the Deutero-Isaiah. And then the really fancy-pants scholars say there were three Isaiahs. And they claim that based on writing style and vocabulary and whatnot, they can tell which Isaiah was writing at, at which time. And the only reason they come up with this nonsense is because, look at this, this could never happen. Somebody couldn't predict the name of the king 150 years before it happens. You're right, nobody could do that. But these liberal theologians try to explain everything in naturalistic, humanistic terms. In fact, ironically, they become the exact people that Isaiah was mocking in Isaiah 44. They made a God with their own hands. It may not be a block of wood, but it's their PhD dissertation. It's it's their, their title, their department chair. Whatever it is that brings them glory. And whatever it is in which they are putting their faith and trust. These things cannot deliver, they can't save. Everybody has a God. The question is, who is your God? Is it the sovereign God of the universe, or is it a God of your own fashioning? Then the heads of fathers... Households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild that. Not everyone returned. Not everyone returned. Lots of people probably got quite comfortable living in Babylon. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuables aside from all that was given as a free will offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. Nebuchadnezzar thought he would plunder the temple and take all the artifacts that were used to worship God and steal them for his own glory. But God was using Nebuchadnezzar to protect all those instruments of worship. Remember in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar's it was either son or grandson had the party and they were getting drunk drinking from the golden chalices that belonged in the temple and that's when the handwriting on the wall pronounced judgment and indeed that king was killed shortly thereafter. All all of those instruments were protected and they Cyrus said, hey, take this stuff and bring it back with you. For no reason other than that, God sovereignly moved in his life to do it. There was really nothing in it for Cyrus. In fact, this is a lot of money he is going to be losing. And he's risking that Israel may rebuild and become a mighty nation that would oppose the Persian Empire. Nothing makes sense from a human level here. Chapter 2 of Ezra talks about the names of the different families that go back, but I want to call your attention to Ezra 3 as they start rebuilding the temple. Ezra 3, verse 10. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. So they've got the scriptures. They've got the foundation laid. They are excited. Worship has not happened on the mountain of God in 70 years. This is a time of great celebration Many who were there had never seen the original temple. They've heard stories about it. They've heard stories about their homeland. This is an exciting time. It says, Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. There were people there who had seen the original temple, and they wept. And we can understand many different reasons for the weeping. this temple would not match the glory of Solomon's temple. They would have remembered times they're worshiping with their family and how weepy you and I get when we think of days gone by and things will never be the same. And we have memories, but we can't have those times back. And they probably wept when they thought of the idolatry that eventually happened in Solomon's temple that led to the destruction of the temple. They wept maybe bitterly over the sins that were committed and how much of this all could have been avoided if the people would have just repented. Maybe some of their weeping was tears of joy. They thought they'd never see this day again. But in the midst of all that, there's this whole other group who knew nothing of the past except stories, and they're shouting for joy, and they're excited. Something new and fresh is going on. We have our own city, our own nation, our own temple. What was just stories mom and dad used to tell us is now becoming reality in front of our eyes. And there's much for us to learn from that moment. It's proper to weep for the past if our tears are due to remorse for the sin that eventually led to the demise of maybe a church you used to attend. Or maybe it was this church and it just feels different now. Remember the good old days when, I love those stories. I've only been here eight years, this church has been here some 30 years. And when we talk about the good old days, they're always better than what we, what they were really like. I hear the stories about our nation and people are rightly concerned about what's happening in our nation and a weeping over the way things used to be. I know people who've come up to Tehachapi because their neighborhoods are no longer safe down in Bakersfield or Lancaster, Palmdale, and they they weep because it's where they raised their children and remember them playing in the street, and now they they wouldn't drive down that street with their doors unlocked, and so. There's a proper time to weep, but remember, things were never as great as you thought they were. Craig Bauer likes to say, your neighborhood street was never as big as you thought it was when you go back to visit. You've, we played football games on this street. And in your mind, it was like a regulation size field. And then you go back home to visit, and you're like, Wow. That's not as big as I thought. Let's learn from the mistakes of history. We can weep and lament over the past, but God's sovereignty allows us to worship and be joyful in the present. Nothing happened in the past that was outside of His sovereignty. We can be joyful in the present In the present moment, wherever we see true worshipers of God exalting his name. We don't have to compare things to the past. God's sovereignty gives us hope for the future. We're going to have a wonderful VBS this week with all the bells and whistles. It's really becoming quite a production. Eight, nine years ago, I was praying just to get one good leader in each area. Now I have so many leaders in each area that I'm telling people who would make great leaders themselves to come and work in a support role. And yet, the day that it becomes all about the production and not about the glory of God is the day he will tear it down. And the little VBS down the street in someone's backyard with 12 kids will be a wonderful cause to celebrate because it will be led by true worshipers who long to see the next generation marvel in God's glory and sovereignty. And if America never returns to being that shining city on a hill for God, then my heart will weep as will yours For what once was, but I will also rejoice and take rest in the fact that God has his people everywhere. It may be a different place or a different culture, a different worship style, a different language. But if God's word is exalted and Jesus Christ is praised, then my shouts of joy for what once was. My shouts of joy for what is will eventually drown out my laments for what once was. Though the sorrow may last for the night, his joy comes with the morning. If we are too focused on what used to be, we will miss out on what God is doing now. Remember, he does his best work when things look bleak. Right? Not that I'm saying bring on the bleakness. But I don't need to be afraid of the future. Because I have a God of the future, and the present, and the past. Nothing takes him by surprise. He is that sovereign. I don't understand how you can perfectly know the future as if it's happening now. But that's God. We live in the moment. We can talk about what happened in the past, and we can guess at what might happen in the future. But God lives past, present, and future simultaneously as if it's a constant now. That's a bigger God than I can wrap my mind around. And that's exactly the point. That is God. He's not like anything else or anyone else we know. Imagine the audacity of being able to predict 150 years from now what exactly is going to happen on what day and the name of the person who's going to do it. We've had people try that and they're always wrong. This would be like Benjamin Franklin predicting that America was going to become a nation and, and win a war against the most powerful empire on the face of the earth only for a hundred years after that enter into a civil war and more lives would be lost in that Civil War than the American Revolution and that some farm boy from Nebraska named Abraham Lincoln would sign the Emancipation Proclamation that that's how specific this prediction was, this prophecy by Isaiah. No more ridiculous than for Abraham Lincoln to turn around after signing the Emancipation Proclamation and saying, 150 years from now, a leader, an African-American leader, is going to be president of this country. And he's going to have a Muslim name. You, you would... That, that's what this prophecy is like. That is ridiculous. And it came to pass exactly the way God told Isaiah to write it down. By the way, God refers to Cyrus as my anointed. This is a title reserved for God's kings and ultimately used to describe Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, God's anointed one, Cyrus prefigures the true King, Jesus Christ, who truly sets his people free from exile and sends us back to the promised land, heaven, our true home. And when we get there, we'll see the true temple, Jesus Christ. The true temple, all other temples, just a shadow of the true temple, The temple that Jesus said, tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. The temple that will never be destroyed again. All things here on earth, all churches, all worship experiences are merely shadows of the ultimate things to come. So enjoy them for what they are now, but don't weep too long for when they pass. For all things will pass. But the things that are eternal will not pass. And those are the things we look forward to. Sometimes God works through revival, and we can pray for revival. Sometimes he works through reformation, and we can pray for reformation. Sometimes God rebuilds. can't rebuild something unless it was torn down and so as you see things that are precious to you being torn down know that it's not the end of the story we pray for revival and work hard to reform but if it's God's prerogatives to rebuild sometimes let's be part of the rebuilding and rest assured that God never re- rewrites He works through revival, he works through reformation, he rebuilds, but he never has to rewrite. There is no plan B. We make mistakes, we second-guess ourselves. God never second-guesses himself. He's written the whole story, he's going to make it come to pass, and we know how the story ends. It looks like this. Myriads upon myriads of true worshippers gathered around the throne, praising God from every tribe, tongue, nation, and denomination. No more sin or suffering, every tear wiped away, no more death, no more fear. The God who chose Israel built her up, delivered her from Egypt, brought her to the promised land, defeated all her enemies, then rebuked her for her idolatry, chastised her through the oppression of new enemies, sent her into exile, announced the exact time of her return by decree of a Persian king who wouldn't even come into existence for 150 years is a God that I can completely trust to make all things come to pass according to His perfect plans. And He's a God that I can trust to make all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. The question is, do you know this God? He's made Himself known. You can know him through faith in Jesus Christ. Father God. Thank you for making yourself known. In ways. That are so obvious. That it leaves man with no excuse. Thank you for making a way for us to know you. Through faith in Jesus Christ. For forgiving us our sins. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And for giving us a hope of a perfect future that will no longer need revival, reform, or rebuilding. Teach us to enjoy what we have now, to properly weep for things that have passed, but to wait expectantly for the better things that are to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.